Amen. Thank you, Luke and Elise, our uh, newest celebrity couple singing duo. I'm just messing with them. There you go. Somebody's excited. Uh, my name is Marshall Gallagher. I'm a pastor here at Hope Community Church, um, and we have been going through 1 Corinthians for quite a while, a uh, couple more chapters to go, We're kind of at the, that final turn of the race, right? Um, and I trust you guys will finish well, uh, but also maybe you don't have a choice because I'm the one who's just up here doing this every Sunday. But uh, no, it'll get really, really good toward the end. We're in the middle of a section on the spiritual gifts, um, which is always something that has seemed to be slippery and kind of confusing for believers. Um, So I'm excited to get to this chapter this morning. We're gonna be mainly in chapter 13. If you need a Bible, there should be one somewhere close by, either under your seat or in front of you, uh, to the left or right. Uh, We're gonna start with 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, the very, very end of chapter 12. Um, Let me read the passage and then we'll jump in. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. So I, I will open it up. I rarely do this, and it's risky for me because I like to prank people, so here's your opportunity. But I want to ask you guys a question you can answer out loud. Who are, who's like your favorite preacher? One of your favorite preachers, one of your maybe theologian or Christian author, something like that. There you go. See, I knew I was, I was waiting for that. No, really. Someone, Tim Keller. Okay. Anybody else? Francis Schaeffer, right? John Piper. Okay. No one else. I know you guys are afraid to yell out in church. Some people think they'll get zapped if they do that, but 
R.C. Sproul, there we go, okay. Tony Evans. Evans. Hey, powerful preacher. All right, even like a TED Talk specialist that may be Christian or anything like that. But anyway, I'm sure many of you kind of have people or names that popped into your head. Jeremy, Uh, yeah, you can yell out Jeremy. Um, What? Uh, okay, but so you, you start thinking about like who are the people who you kind of admire for certain attributes or gifts or things like that within the church, and we're thinking big, big, broad kind of church, right? It doesn't have to be a personal pastor, um, but you have all these people from a whole host of different backgrounds and what their gifts are, what they're known for, and things like that. And if I were going to list the people who I'm, who I really admire, who I would go listen to, if it's like, hey, if you could just listen to a preacher just for one sermon live, like who do you think it would be? Um, would those people, those authors, preachers, speakers, conference kind of gurus, what would they be primarily known for? Would it be how loving they are? And, and I have to admit, like that's not in my top, top qualifying space is, you know why I love this preacher? Because he makes me feel so loved by God every time he speaks. I don't even know that that is what people would even say about me. I, I doubt it. But Paul's saying it ought to be. That ought to be the superlative, the thing that you would look for most and first and always keep above everything else. Primarily, that means like Twitter is just gone now because that's not the primary quality that you find on social media. But if that's not the quality, if that's not the highest thing that you look for with the people you most admire, most want to be like, most learn from, Paul's saying there's, there's something off. I think even immediately we're, we're kind of convicted like, oh yeah, dang, I don't, I don't know that I, my favorite is someone who's just known for being the most beloved, loving, kind pastor in America, a preacher that exists, or author, maybe they're known for almost the opposite of that, which is sometimes scary for us. But that's what was going on in the church. So we know that the Corinthians were obsessed with this social acclaim, social status, what lining up with people could do for them personally, and they were desiring all these spiritual gifts, which Paul said is good. He said, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, the very beginning of 31, he says, but I will show you an even better way, a more excellent way. And so kind of the main point I wanna bring to you this morning is that love is the highest spiritual virtue that we could possibly pursue, possess, obtain, aim for. Love is the highest of them all. I think Paul tries to prove this in three kind of sections. You can maybe see it broken down in your Bible in those three paragraphs in chapter 13. I think he starts with the necessity of love, then the portrait of love, then the trajectory of love. 
And so hopefully that's what I'll use to convince you guys, just like Paul is trying to convince the Corinthians through the necessity, the portrait, and the trajectory of love. Um, But first, if you look down, he says, I will show you a still more excellent way. And Paul was aiming right at their desire to find just impressive social asset and value in the tongues and the miraculous gifts and the healing and the prophecy. All these things that they were, it wouldn't be too strong to say they were obsessing over. Maybe not that they personally had this Corinthian church, but if anyone walked up and could, could speak in tongues or could give a prophecy, they, they would fawn over them and value it more than any other thing. And that's what Paul's aiming at. Um, but there's even this trap that I think we fall into when we read the Bible. It's very, very easy to fall into. It happens in the Old Testament when we hear about Israel. And I think it happens a lot with this church in Corinth is we think like, gosh, these people are so stupid. Like, they're just not getting it. I don't understand why they're so thick. They know they shouldn't do, I don't understand why they don't just, you know, reference Paul's letters and not be obsessed with these spiritual gifts that are all out of whack. Like, why are they so conceited? Why are they so dysfunctional? And we often find ourselves like in the right side of the biblical argument. I mean, Israel, it's like, gosh, when are they going to get it? Are the disciples like, Peter, how dumb can you be? And it's really easy for us to do this. And it's a trap. And so if you are always on the right side of the biblical argument of like the scene that's going on, you may be reading the Bible, but you are not letting it read you. We're never the hero of, of any of these letters, any of these stories, anything like that. Rarely are even the biblical characters other than Jesus and the Holy Spirit. God is the hero of this. And so let's avoid that trap of just kind of looking down on the Corinthians and just kind of open ourselves up to say, hey, we're not going anywhere, right? For those of us who have put our faith in Christ, we're in Christ. So because of him, we're on the right side, but let's learn from what they're going through. And so he is giving a correction. So if if we look at the first verse of 13, it says, if I speak in tongues, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong. If I have prophetic powers, but have not love, and if I have faith, but have not love, I'm nothing. And if I give everything away, but have not love, I gain nothing. And so Paul kind of gives these three categories He talks about speaking, knowing, and doing. And again, he's aiming at very impressive things, but these tongues, so we talked about that before. Um, I think it was being able to proclaim the gospel in many different languages, languages that you didn't know before you started proclaiming the gospel. It was a spiritual power, spiritual gift given by the Spirit to testify to God, right? It's for the building up of the church. It's not for just impressiveness, You can even hear how they were kind of falling off the cliff of it being for impressiveness. But Paul is saying, if I speak in even these tongues of angels, I don't think he's referencing like an angelic language. I think he's just saying, if I even give me supernatural languages of angels, but if I don't have love, it's just noise. And we know that. Speaking for Christianity, for testifying to God, that may be one of the biggest complaints of all Christianity is 
people speaking, testifying to God without any kind of love behind it and it just doing way more harm than good. And we're a relatively young congregation. And as I get older, I realize that I have overvalued the whole telling it like it is shtick or just giving the truth. Oh yeah, truth bomb. There aren't any older Christians that I admire who, who play that. And I feel like it's very easy to be an honest coward when it comes to speaking truth. I think it's really, really easy to not care at all about who's receiving it, to not spend the long suffering patience that you have to do to love someone when you can just say, well, here it is, bam. Notice Paul doesn't say, hey, have you intended to love someone? As long as you intend it, you know, the road to heaven is paved with good intentions. He says, do you have love? Do you truly have love? I think it's easy with good energy, good fury, good passion towards the Lord. I think it's easy to not love. It's really hard to speak the truth in love. Don't don't be a noisy, clanging symbol to someone. And if you find that often when you tell people the truth, that it's only received negatively, that may need to be some work that you do, not necessarily that just they don't like truth. Of course they could. They could misunderstand. Jesus died for people, and they mocked him and rejected him, and of course that can happen. But I think that's a big kind of check that we all need to take, especially with this social media age that it is just so easy to not love people and speak to them in a way that we think is spiritually gifted when really it's just lazy and cowardly. And he talks about knowing, and this was so important, so important to the Corinthians, these prophetic powers, understanding all mysteries and knowledge, that's incredible. This person is so impressive and they would have put all their energy into these prophetic people. So you don't have love, it's you're nothing. This thing that would have made you everything in Corinth. Without love, you're nothing. And he talks about doing, losing everything, giving everything away, offering up his body, the very thing that Paul would do do being martyred for his faith Paul knew this saying without love it doesn't even matter love is the necessary component for all of these spiritual gifts to even be validated doesn't matter how impressive it is if it doesn't have love it's missing a necessary piece And so that brings up a question of, all right, well, what is that necessary piece? What, define it, right? Define love. What is love there? If it's so necessary to to validate all these spiritual gifts, what we speak or say or do coming from the Spirit, what is it? So rather than just give like a black and white definition, Paul kind of paints a picture. He doesn't just say love is fill in the blank. 
he, he wants to show us, he describes it in a way that's much more beautiful. I mean, even think about a picture, and it's like, well, this is a painting of this night. There were lots of stars. It's swirly. I'm, not, I'm doing nothing to Van Gogh, Van Gogh, right? Starry night, right? Wouldn't you rather just stand and just look at it? That's what Paul's doing by just describing what love is. Rather than just giving a black and white, he's trying to paint a portrait of love. And so verse four, let me read it again. I don't know that we could get tired of reading this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You may now kiss the right. <laughs> that was a cheap preacher joke. I, I put that in and I was like, I can't do it. Then I got up here and I was like, I have to do it. Uh, no wonder this is read at weddings, right? Like, and you're looking at it in context. And if this was the passage in your wedding, don't let anybody discourage or like disparage you for having this. But it's not about a wedding, right? Like, it's not about marital love. Paul's talking about the spiritual gifts. What love is, the portrait of love. There's no, I mean, it makes total sense as why this is read in so many weddings, Christian or not. This is a beautiful portrait of what love is. And if any of us are honest in the least bit, we're like, oh gosh, that does not describe me. Maybe, maybe you can point and try for one of those things. Maybe three if you're really, really loving, but like you read that and you're like, okay, I got some work to do. Well, the point is that is Paul is putting this up as this is pure love, perfected love, and it ought to be beautiful. I mean, a, a definition almost would ruin this compared to what he just kind of showed us in general. And I think this is what all of us want. Like, I don't know everything about everybody here. Some of you, I, I barely even know it all. I know that you want this, though. I know that you were made to find this. And I know that you've probably spent most of your life looking for it. Probably some of the worst mistakes in your life looking for that. I think when we have it, we are, we are filled. Nothing can go wrong if we have what's described there in those verses. And without it, doesn't it feel like we're wilting inside? Or if, if we thought we had it in something and that thing, that created thing lets us down, doesn't it feel like our whole world is out of whack? We feel like we're, we're shriveling up and dying on the inside when we know we don't have this? It's what we long for. It's because this is what we were made for and we will never find it. We'll spend our entire lives not finding it unless it's in the only person who actually embodied all this and that's Jesus. There is no one else. There is nothing else who will have this except for Jesus. 
patient and kind? I mean, just being with the disciples for three years and how ridiculous they were. Or or what about when he's going to heal that little girl who died and the woman just grabs him in a crowd and he stops and he says, your faith has healed you this day. The kindness of Christ to people and then telling the little girl, hey, no, 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 no. Get up. Death doesn't have you yet. Get up. And then he gets the girl breakfast, which is like an extra level of kindness. Or what about in Matthew 19, when the little children come up to him, not arrogant or rude, all the adults are pushing the people away, telling the parents to get their kids, like, kids, get out. Jesus says, no, 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 don't prevent them. Let them come to me. The, the kingdom of God is for those who, like a child, will come to me. There's no ounce of arrogance there. Verse five, it does not insist on its own way. Jesus praying, sweating blood, saying, Lord, take this cup away from me, please. But nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. Not resentful. Peter betrayed him three times. The first thing Jesus did when he rose, he said, you go tell Peter. And then he comes to Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you, you know that. Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, please stop this. You know I love you. And Jesus knew that. He wanted to restore him. The very one who denied him, rejected him. There's no resentment in Christ. Verse seven bears all, believes all, hopes all, endures all. Isaiah 53, if you want to turn there, starting in verse three, just just listen to this or follow along if, if you want in your Bible. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. That is Jesus. And then what Alex read, the following verses, the response, sing, enlarge your tent, fear not. When we come to Christ, when we have that, 
everything is fine. But there is no other pure source of love but Jesus. It is the highest spiritual virtue that we could pursue, but it's also the highest spiritual value virtue that we could obtain or possess, and there's no way to do it without Christ. And so for those of you who put your faith in him, who come to him and say, I have nothing but you, I need you, I need your work to reconcile me to you, you have it, but God doesn't just leave it there, not just like a portrait or a picture you would put at your house so you can just glance at and carry on with your day. It's going somewhere. And so that's that third point is this love has a trajectory. It's moving to a location, moving to a place. In verse eight, if you look, it says, love never ends. Just let, let that kind of fall on you. Love never ends. He continues, says, his prophecies, tongues, knowledge, they'll cease, they'll pass away. Not love. Love is worth spending everything for. All of your life. It's the only thing that you could spend all of your life, all of your death, and the rest of eternity pursuing. And so there's a question, I think, for us as a church. We like knowledge, right? It's a good thing. Paul is not pitting these gifts against each other. So if you're kind of like, ha, take that knowledge, take that prophecy and understanding, love just whooped you. Like, that's not what he's doing. He is prioritizing them, though. And so I think our church especially, we need to ask the question, do our priorities line up with what Paul's saying they ought to? Like we, we love good books. We love the preachers that you all mentioned, like high-level thinking doctrinal preachers, which is not bad, which is a good thing, a wonderful thing, but it's not love. And so I think we all need to ask ourselves, what's our highest virtue that we're pursuing? Is it doctrinal understanding? Is it knowing the Bible really, really deep, but kind of maybe forgetting that love side? And they're not in competition with, with each other. The more we know ought to cultivate our affection for God and cultivate our affections for others. But I think we always have to test ourselves. Are, are we wrestling the two? Because there shouldn't be any competition. It should be love is the most important thing. And so if the more you know doesn't create a deeper love for God and other people, something is off. You're aiming at something different than what Paul is saying is the most important thing. Because every true Christian, every true believer who is at the mega church, that they just do the very light, fluffy messages that we might critique and say there's no depth of theology there. In heaven, all of those people will know as much as you do. Knowledge will cease. We're not gonna need it anymore. I'm not saying that like our brains will shut off, but 
That's what Paul talks about in that in verse nine says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will, will pass away. Tongues, prophecy, knowledge, wisdom, all those things were to point to God, to reveal certain things about God, to teach us about God. When we get to heaven, when the perfect comes, when Jesus returns, we don't need it, but love will be there. So in heaven, every believer, every born again Christian will be at the same doctrinal level. And again, that's not to say that you're wasting your time at all. Doctrine ought to create more love. But if if that bothers you, if that scares you, that somebody who doesn't really care about theology will be at the exact same place as you in heaven, you might have a mismatch of priorities. Because once the perfect comes, all of those things will pass away. We won't need them anymore. And thank God we won't need them anymore. Paul uses two illustrations Towards the end of the chapter, he says, when I was a child, I spoke, I thought, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. He's saying there's a season, there's a time frame. I think a lot of people can hear that just in a very practical level. Like I have to tell myself constantly as a father, like when I get really mad and upset at my kid who's getting upset, I'm the one acting out of turn. Temper tantrums are what kids do. They're acting like a child. When a grown man has a temper tantrum, he's acting out of turn, right? And it's not saying that childlikeness is bad or anything like that. Paul's just making a very simple statement of there is a time, we're maturing, we have a trajectory, we're moving towards something and that is Christ moving time down. I don't know when that day will be but there will be a day where just like a child growing into a full man as Paul says, that season will be over, that time will be over and we will be in a different place. We'll let go of those partial things, prophecy, knowledge, tongues, and we will see Jesus face to face. We will fully know him. He talks about the same thing in a mirror. It, it, it's, have you ever tried to like grab that hair that keeps coming back or something like that? Or you're trying to see something in a mirror, like adjust your sideburns or something like that? I'm trying to think of like a Maybe put makeup on. I'm not familiar with that one. But it's like looking through a mirror, you're like, gosh, if I could just see this and you're turning and kind of maneuvering everything, trying to get that reflection just right so you can actually see something well. Paul's saying that that's how we're looking at Christ. We can see these reflections, but it's not face to face. It's not right in front of us. And another letter to the Corinthians, Paul talks about, it's, it's almost like a, we have a veil over us. And when the perfect comes, when Christ returns, when we see God face to face, there's nothing in the way perfectly seeing Jesus and God. There'll be a shift and that shift, Paul says, now I know in part, that's the time we're in now, then I shall know fully 
even as I have been fully known. That's, that's the place we're going to. That's where the trajectory ends. That's where it's headed to. Fully knowing, seeing God. And Paul adds this kind of aside, like as we've been fully known. I think that is all that we are ever looking for. Love where all of us is totally known and seen every dark corner thing we don't want to share with anybody. It would be fully, fully known, fully realized, and you're loved. We spend our entire lives setting up systems to avoid pain, avoid losing love, avoid people hurting us, avoid really sharing these parts of our hearts that we really wish no one else knew about. And I know we all have them. And I know some of them are probably popping into your head right now. God sees and knows all of that. And for those of us who are in Christ, he loves you. Because this love is not qualified based on any of that stuff. It's based on Christ and his work on the cross. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what you want? To be fully known and absolutely fully delighted in and loved. To have this portrait of love in verse four through seven. To be true to know that it's true and then we'll get to heaven and we'll see God and fully understand, fully know all those trials, all that pain, all those questions. I think they'll just pause. I think we'll get to heaven and we'll just see God. We'll fully, we'll just, we'll just get it and we will sit there and we will just be okay. We'll just be good. It'll be wonderful. All that, what's the first question you're gonna ask? And I, I, don't, I don't care anymore. Because I, I get God. That's heaven. That's what we're moving towards. That's what the spirit is sending us on this trajectory toward. And it's all we were made for. It's all the Bible is about, is sending us into that direction and us finally getting to behold who God is and us seeing clearly seeing clearly love and realizing, God, you saw me that much and loved me? God's saying, yes, absolutely. And I think we'll just be good for a long, long time. And then we have eternity. And even longer past that. (laughs) There is nothing else worth spending your entire life on because we're gonna spend our entire eternity in love, on love, beholding love, never growing tired of love. So we can pursue all these things. We can pursue all these spiritual virtues, spiritual gifts, all this stuff, but without love, it doesn't matter. It's not worth it. So so I don't know where you are personally. I know you want love. 
I don't care what reasons or deflections or whatever else, even what your story is, I know you want love. And you're gonna spend your entire life after it until you found it in Christ. And maybe you just need to be reminded of that. God loves you enough to send his son to give up everything for you, to bear all things so that you could know this love. And if you don't have it, I hope you know where you can find it. Paul closes in verse 13. He says, now faith, hope, and love abide. It's abundant. They remain, right? All three of those are gonna be around forever. The greatest is love. I pray and I hope that everybody here knows that they can find it in Jesus and that's the only place they can find it. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for loving us, for showing us love, for explaining it to us, for modeling it to us, even for creating us to desire it. God, I pray that you would give us all clarity clarity in what we're longing for that we could spend so much energy looking for love and trying to create it trying to manipulate and spin and twist all so that we could have this God I, I pray that everyone would just be honest and we just let go of all the masks and all the deflections and all the things that we will put up and pretend like this is not the thing that we truly, truly want. And Holy Spirit, I pray that if anyone doesn't know you and even those who do, that you would spark their hearts and light their hearts up and cause them to furiously desire it and to find it in you and to know that they can run circles and circles and circles and not find it anywhere but in you, Jesus. We know that it is your work that creates that clarity and so I pray for all of us now that you would help us long for it in a more clear picture. Pray this in your name. Amen.